Good morning, everyone. I want to thank our generous sponsors this morning, Deborah Scheinbein, in memory of her beloved father, Aryeh Leib Ben Shalom, in commemoration of his 60th year at Zayt, the second of Shvat. His neshama should continue to have an aliyah. And the Schreier family for the Yeratites of their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, Maxine and Bernard Sullivan, in memory of Uncle Lester Friedman, and the Rafur Shlema for Eliezer Tzvi Rafal Ben Yafa Freidel, who's having a procedure today. It should go well, and he should have a complete and speedy and painless Rafur Shlema. Okay, let's begin. We are going to try to actually get into Pesukim today, in addition to our overview of the Parsha. Very ambitious goal we have. But we'll see. We'll see if we can reach it or not. But let's start with our overview of the parsha, and then we'll get into our specific psukim. Parsha's bow picks up where the plagues left off. In last week's parsha, the Torah went through the first seven plagues. Why did Hashem choose to take the people out of Mitzrayim with such pomp and circumstance, such drama and flair? Why not simply go from exile to redemption like that? And the Torah tells us several times, because this was actually a pedagogic experience. The plagues were a curriculum. This was an educational moment. For Paro, yes, for the Mitzrim, but also for the Jewish people. Paro began by saying, Mi Hashem, who's God? How do I know He exists? And what is He in charge of? And what does He control? And Hashem says, you're asking who I am? Let me introduce myself. Ten different ways and ten different times. It's Rabbi Yehuda's great... Contribution we discussed on Shabbos afternoon. When you, Rabbi Yehuda gives us the acronym that we summarize the plagues, he's not just giving us an acronym or conveniently dividing the plagues in three. He's explaining to us some of the educational methodology that by lumping in three, what do the three have in common? What are they communicating? How is Hashem answering Paro's three questions with three answers? This is who I am. I control the world. I control you. It's not the Nile. Certainly it's not you, Paro. It's my world. I created it, and I run it, and that's what the plagues are all about. So we pick up with Hashem continuing to harden the heart of Paro. A theme that runs through our parshios that still begs for explanation, though we're not going to do it today. What happened to free will? Isn't free will the hallmark, the backbone, the foundation of life? How could God suspend free will? And if He does it for Paro... How do we know he doesn't do it for us? Is that a good defense? Shem, it's not my fault. You hardened my heart. You forced me to do it. So where do free will and predeterminism fit in with that age-old that age-old question? Okay, so we have the eighth plague, which is of locusts. And then Hashem tells Moshe, Arbev, Ayalar, Mitzrayim, exactly what happens. The ninth plague, page 344. We're going to try to move a little bit quickly because I want to... Get to our psukim, as I said. Actually, let's go back for a second. We're already going to go backwards. I want to share with you an insight of Rabbi Salavechik towards the beginning of the parsha. It says, Why is God doing these plagues? Bo el paro. What does Hashem say? Not lech el paro, but bo. What's the difference between lech and bo? God doesn't say, Moshe, go. I've got a mission. I've got an assignment. You're on your own. He says, no, come. Bo. Let's go together. It's a very powerful message. This is not from Rabbi Salavitchik. Many, many people say this. That when we identify and seek to fulfill our mission in our lives, we're not doing it as emissaries on our own. But there's a sense that Hashem has said, come with me. I'm with you. Whether it's Ima Anuchi B'tzara, when Hashem is with us when we're down and out, 
or Hashem is with us with our triumph and success, but Hashem doesn't send us out on our own. Shliach Shaladim Kemoso, if we're His agent, we are on His behalf, He is with us. Bo. Hashem says, Nu, come. But if you look at the second Pasuk, Parakyud Pasuk, base page 340, let's go back for a moment. Ulaman Tesaper Ba'aznei Bencha Ubin Bencha, Esa Sheres Alalta Bimitzrayim Ves Ososaya Sheres Samti Bam, Vidatem Kiani Hashem. Vidatem Kiani Hashem. Parah says, Echeda, how do I know? Avram said, Bama Eida. And this whole experience of the way Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim is everyone's wondering how they'll know. This is how you know. I am interfering and interrupting the rules of nature. I am providing a level of revelation that is unprecedented and unparalleled. And I'm doing it so that for all time and in perpetuity, you can look back and point and say, God did not create a world and move on. He remains intimately involved in our lives. And so today, on Tuesday, in 2018, when we say, how do we know that God's involved in our lives? How do we know this providence, hashkacha pratis? How do we know He cares? The answer is, You can know. It's not just a leap of faith. You can have you can have knowledge. Where does that knowledge emanate from? Because I heard from my parents, who heard from their 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 parents, who were in Mitzrayim. And they saw God suspend the rules of nature and interfere with the world. And vidatem ki So that forever we could point and say, it's part of my family narrative, that God did not create a world and move on. He remains intimately involved in it and with us. And that's why the famous Kuzari, we've shared this before, in the Aseris Adibras, we'll read in a few weeks in Parshas Yisro, when God says, Anochi Hashem it's nice to meet you. I took you out of Egypt. Why didn't he say the much more impressive thing? Which is, I am the Lord your God who did what? Who created the world. It's much more impressive. Ex nihilo. I told Rav Khan, who was our guest this past Shabbos, who has a degree in Latin and is written in Latin. I said, I also know Latin. Ex nihilo. Imitatio Dei. Those are the two Latin expressions everybody knows. So, what does it mean, ex nihilo? Something from nothing. When we create, we go to Home Depot or Lowe's, we buy some ingredients or supplies, we mix them, we create, and we think that we're creators. Even the greatest way that we emulate the Almighty, the greatest way that we can follow Hashem's example, the ultimate creation the human being experiences is conception. A child, a human being. But we need ingredients, and the ingredients have to be healthy and functional. And it still even then relies on Hashem. We can't just mix them in a petri dish and know with certainty that they will result in a healthy child. There's a number of couples davening from the bottom of their hearts, having the ingredients, mixing them, and still waiting for Hashem. So the most impressive thing Hashem has ever done is to create something from nothing. There was so vavo, there was nothingness, barrenness. You know, when we picture nothingness, we're still picturing something. An empty room, a dark hole, the blackened galaxy. It's even beyond our comprehension to picture what nothing looks like. We don't know nothing. Our nothing is the absence of something. It's really not nothing. The nothing of Hashem is beyond our comprehension because it's beyond our experience. So we can't even be impressed enough with what it means that Hashem created something from nothing because we can't even understand what nothing is. 
And yet Hashem did it. So why doesn't he introduce himself? Here in Yisro, Veschanan, I'm the Lord your God, nice to meet you. I want to tell you the most impressive thing about me, the greatest thing on my resume. I created something from nothing. The whole world, everything in existence. Why does he say instead, nice to meet you, I took you out of Egypt? And the Kuzari of Yudah Levi says, why? Because we might say, it's nice that you created, what does that have to do with me? Someone built this building, I don't know their name. Someone painted the painting, I've never met them. Someone sculpted the sculpture, I know nothing about them. Someone sewed this clothing, produced these garments. I have no relationship with them. So even if I believe that you're the creator and I'm blown away and impressed that it was something from nothing, that doesn't mean that you have a relationship with me. How do I know that you're involved in my life? That you're intimately aware of, involved in, and shaping my life? How do I know? Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Vidatem. Hashem says, I'm going to show you in the biggest, most dramatic way possible. I'm going to do it once. And it's going to appear in all the books and it'll be part of your family narrative and our people's stories so that we can forever point to it. Yesterday, MLK, Martin Luther King, also pointed to this story. And every movement of liberation, of emancipation, of freedom, of civil rights, every movement has pointed to this story of the Exodus, used its imagery, taken from its language. And daily we're supposed to as individuals and collectively, v'yidatem k'ani Hashem. But how does that happen? Our children say, well, where's God? You know, if He would do plagues, I would believe in Him. If He would reveal Himself to me, if He talked to me, how am I supposed to know? So it begins with the first part of the Pasuk. Laman ben ben You've got to tell in the ears of your children and your children's children that I made a mockery of Egypt. I made a mockery of Egypt. That one day Egypt was the strongest empire on earth. They were enslaving an entire nation. They controlled the world's economy. They had the mightiest army. And God says, I made a laughing stock of them overnight. I turned their water into blood and I spread out animals and I, I interfered with their lives. And you've got to tell your children because the only way they'll know that I'm involved in their lives is if you tell them that you're, you heard from your great-grandparents who saw me be involved in theirs. So on this, Rabbi Salavechik says, the word Sipur, Laman Tisaper, as in Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the story of leaving Egypt is rooted in the verb Saper, to recount. The word is also related to the noun, Sofer, a scribe. The common etymological root of these words suggests that a story can be transmitted orally as well as through the written word. Megillus Esther is referred to both as an Igeras, a letter, and a Sefer, a book. The difference between a Nigeris and a Sefer is that Nigeris is written to less exacting standards than a Sefer. A letter connotes something not crafted with care. It's routinely discarded after being read. But a Sefer, a book on the other hand, must be written on parchment. It must be permanent. It contains no superfluous words or letters. A Sofer writes a Sefer for his generation as well as for the succeeding generations. The written word allows us to delve into man's thoughts and identify with them. When we study Chumash, we are not merely learning of events that took place thousands of years ago. Through the skill of Ksav Vehamichtav, we become contemporaries of the protagonists. As a child in Cheder, said the Rav, I studied the Parsha of Lechlecha toward the beginning of the school year, during the raw Polish autumn. As I trudged through the muddy streets to school, I imagined how Avram traveled to Canaan under similar circumstances. As a young boy, I lived with the drama of the Akedah and the tragedy of Sarah's death. My heart would pound in fear that perhaps Esau would return early from the hunt before Yitzchak completed his blessing and Yaakov would be caught red-handed. Today we experience what is popularly referred to as a generation gap. 
Children can find no meaning in their parents' experiences. They have difficulty identifying with people and events that took place only 20 years earlier. Yet the ability to transport us in the past to span generations is the sublime idea of Ksav v'hamechta. Through Ksav v'hamechta, one can relive events that happened even thousands of years ago. And this is evident no more than on Seder night. A key directive in the Haggadah is the statement, in every generation one is obligated to see himself as if we left. How can we relive an event that happened 3,500 years ago? Through Torah Sheba Peh, a tradition that unites us with previous generations and enables us to experience events simultaneously with them. Recounting leaving Egypt is not merely telling a story. The imperative of, and you shall tell your son, Laman Tesaper, Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim, has a deeper meaning. It means that your children should be the safer upon which the father writes. The foremost task of a father is to be a sofer, to transform his son into a book upon which he writes indelibly, a book that will survive him and be imparted to succeeding generations. The appellation, the people of the book, does not signify a nation that reads books. It is a nation whose very being is a book. The mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim means inscribing one's entire religious consciousness upon the next generation until that generation is ready to perform the same task of Sipur at the Seder table with their own children. So very beautiful imagery. Pesach is soon upon us. But it's not just a Pesach mitzvah. Laman tisaper, Sipur, become a sofer. Write the book of our national narrative, of our people's story on the hearts and minds and souls of your children and grandchildren. It's experiential. It's not intellectual. It's transmitted what's in the heart. And that's the mission. I have a relationship with Hashem. You've seen me talk to Hashem. You've seen me cry. You've seen me protest. You've seen me express gratitude and thankful and be thankful. And that's what I'm writing onto your heart. Um, that's the story I'm telling. I am a sofer in transmitting all of that. The Torah says, with this plague, we're going to move along, the eighth plague, that Vayomru avdei paro elav. The servants of paro spoke to Moshe. Rabbi Salavitchik notes, it says, avdei paro elav. The term Avdei Paro suggests that these people were the slaves of Paro. Their very identity was intertwined with their allegiance to Paro. But in contrast, how are we described? Think to the beginning of the Haggadah, How do we start? Right after Manashtana, the father begins to give the answer, the parents give the answer to the children. How do we begin it? Don't make me sing it. Avadim hayinu leparo Rabbi Salavechik notes, contrast... Avdei paro with avadim hayinu liparo. Avdei paro means their whole identity was allegiance, loyalty. We are slaves of paro. It is the sum total, it's the essence, it's the who we are. As opposed to avadim hayinu liparo, that we were in servitude. We never identified with our taskmaster. That never became the sum total of who we are. The Medrash indicates that every Shabbos the enslaved Israelites would read from the scrolls which foretold that they would be redeemed. Even during their servitude, they believed in their ultimate redemption. And I think to the incredible stories of the Holocaust, of spiritual resistance, where people were avadim hayinu to the Nazis and to the SS, but they never stole our identity. They gave a number, they tried to dehumanize, but they never took away our identity. Yosef Mendelovitch is speaking here next week, I think, next Shabbos the great heroic Refusnik, his story, Natan Sharansky, their story is that even in the former Soviet Union, they didn't become Avdei communism, 
They were avadim hayinu to communism. The story of our people is that even when we were oppressed, even when we were imprisoned, even when we were persecuted, we never lost our identity. We never assimilated our destiny into the condition that we were experiencing. We always understood that it's a moment. That right now, we are avadim hayinu leparo, but we're not avdei paro. We can never lose our actual identity or our essence. Another very, very beautiful insight. Okay, let's keep going. The ninth plague is darkness. We've spoken about it in the past. You can listen online. One year we gave many interpretations exactly what darkness was all about. Paro's last act of intransigence, of refusal, the warning of the plague of the firstborn. You know, it's a great miracle. Page 346, the Pasuk right before Revi'i. Perik Yedalef, Pasuk Gimel. Page 346. What happens? Hashem gives the people favor in the eyes of Egypt. Not only that, but Moshe was very great. And furthermore, moreover, before whom? First of all, you see the expression again. Moshe was great not only in the land of Egypt, but in the eyes of Paro. And the Rav points out, this is one of the incredible miracles. I don't know that I appreciated it until I read this insight this morning. Did it ever occur to you that Moshe is going back to the palace ten times to tell Paro, to rebuke him, and to condemn him, and to tell him, you know the suffering you just experienced? I initiated it. And guess what? I'm going to bring about another round of it. If you're Paro, what would you do? Kill him. Throw him in the dungeon, solitary confinement, cut off his head, hang him in the courtyard. I mean, how many times? This is Paro. How many times is Moshe going to walk and march into the Oval Office and tell Paro off? And the Rav writes, it's remarkable how many times Moshe and Aaron were given an audience with Paro, the supreme ruler of Egypt, despite they repeatedly reproached him. Paro had the power to execute anyone at will, and they suffered no personal consequence. The tolerance of Paro is perhaps one of the great miracles of the Exodus. Underappreciated, right? That part of the hardening Paro's heart was not only not letting the people go, but the miracle that Moshe and Aaron marched in and out of that office. Moshe was a charismatic leader. It bears witness to Moshe's greatness that he made such an impression on Paro that Paro would do him no harm. The Torah refers to Moshe with the honorific Haish in two other places. When he's delayed in returning from Arsina after 40 days, the people say, Moshe Ha'ish. We don't know what's become of him. And again, we find in Bamidbar, Ha'ish Moshe Anav Ma'od. This man, Moshe, was exceedingly humble after his sister Miriam spoke against him and incurred God's wrath. The word Ha'ish suggests a charismatic personality. His personality was captivating. Paro was so taken by it that even though it was in his best interest to eliminate Moshe, he was so taken by Moshe's charisma that he had admiration. Unique to Egypt was the fact that they respected Moshe as a human being, not a super being. The Egyptians being pagans could have deified him as they did Paro. But instead they looked at Moshe not as a god, as Ish. That's why it says Ish. Even though they could have thought he was a god through what was happening to them, these plagues they were incurring, they continued to see him as an ish, a charismatic ish, and continued to be impressed, impressed by that.
Okay, let's keep going. The warning of the firstborn. When is this plague going to strike the firstborn? This is an unbelievable insight. Vayomer Moshe, Ravi, Perak Dalad, page 346. Vayomer Moshe, Koamar Hashem, Kachatsos Halayla Aniyotze Besoch Mitzrayim. When is this play going to strike? Kachatsos Halayla. And of course, of course, Rashi mentions, what should it have said? Bachatsos. God says to Moshe, tell Paro, around midnight. Maybe around midnight. What is he, the, the, the washing machine repairman? I'm coming between one and one o'clock next month. You know, spend your entire day waiting. Kachatsos, I'll be there around sometime this year. What happened to Bachatzos? Why not exactly at midnight? And Chazal says something amazing. What do Chazal say? Look at Rashi. Shomer Moshe Kachatzos to Mashma Samachlo Lefan of Allah Charov a little before, a little after, around there. Velo Amar Bachatzos. Why? Shema Yitu at Tzagnine Paro Viomer Moshe Badayhu. The astrologers, the advisors of Paro, will say, God said He's going to strike us at midnight. Came at eleven fifty-nine and fifty-two seconds. Clearly, this is just a coincidence. It's a fluke. This wasn't the hand of God. Or he came at 12.01. Yeah, clearly this is just nature. Fluke of nature. So, the Pnimim Torah asks, are you telling me that after nine plagues, after nine times seeing the rules of nature suspended, on this tenth time, being off a few seconds would cause them to reach that conclusion? Come on, is that even possible? And you know what he answers? He says, yeah. When we want to ignore reality, our psyche has the ability to even defy logic to justify our behavior. When we want to justify or excuse or rationalize our behavior, we have this incredible ability to even defy logic and become morons just to defend what we're doing. To offer the most irrational, the most absurd defense, which intellectually we can't begin to believe is true, but just to justify our behavior. We have that capacity. Not only the Itztagnine Paro, but really all of us. There's a story once, Reb Chaim Brisker went to another city, and there was a famous, um, there was a famous heretic in the other city, and he came to Reb Chaim, and he riddled him with all these kashas, all these questions he had, theologically, philosophically, evidence for God's existence. How do I know? I don't really believe it. It's not true. And Reb Chaim didn't entertain the questions. He wouldn't answer. And later the students asked him when they were apart, why didn't you answer these questions? You're the brilliant Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Salavechik. Why didn't you respond? Why didn't you explain? Why didn't you put him in his place? Reb Chaim gave what became a famous response. He said, I only give Terutzim to Kashas. I don't give Terutzim to Terutzim. I only give answers to questions. I don't give answers to answers. The maskil or the heretic or the Amba'aretz, the kofar, was, was purporting to put forward questions. But sometimes we're putting forward a response, an answer in the form of a question. It's not really a question at all. It's an answer to excuse what we're doing. I see that all the time when you're dealing with outreach or you're dealing with much more acutely people off the derech and they'll tell you this and that and the other is the reason why. 
this question, that question, and the third question. And you can entertain the question from Heintel Morgan. You could offer them Rabbi Sachs's book and a meeting with Rabbi Sachs. Lord Sachs was speaking on Thursday night. And you can give them, that was just a plug, and you can give them everything in the world, but it really isn't about their questions. The questions are answers to defend the lifestyle that they've now gone to lead. And they've gone to lead that maybe not just hedonistically, they want the lifestyle. They've gone because their third grade Rebbe hit them with a belt and they therefore are turned off to Judaism. But they can't say I'm turned off because my Rebbe hit me with a belt because that doesn't sound so sophisticated. So they say, well, you know, I have the following seven questions I found on the internet that prove for me there's no God. And even though you can offer 70 answers to the seven questions, they're terutsum to terutsum, they're not terutsum to kashas. So we time, sometimes have the capacity ourselves to act like the itztagnine paro, that kachatzos, bachatzos, that we can be irrational and borderline moronic just to be able to defend, just to be able to defend what we don't want to, uh, what we don't want to accept. Okay. Good. Let's keep going. All of a sudden we, we, um, break our regular scheduled story in order to have the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. First we have the we have uh, the middle of the plague. Hashem says, I'm going to bring the whopper of all plagues, the tenth plague. This is going to really blow you away. By the way, we have the luxury because we've been keeping Pesach since we're born and taking the wine out of the cup. We have the luxury of reading the story knowing that there are ten plagues. If you were Paro or the Mitzrim, or for that matter, Moshe or Aaron and Jewish people, you had no idea how long this was going to go on. This could be the first ten of a hundred. This could be the first ten of a thousand. You had absolutely no idea how long this would go on. Here, when Hashem says to Moshe, this is going to be the last one. This is the tenth. So now he knows, or it might have been with the ninth, he says, this is the second to last one, the penultimate plague. So he had the luxury now of knowing the unit when it would end. But if you're power, you have no idea how long this will go on. So Hashem says, the whopper of plagues, I'm going to give you makas b'choros. But before, let me interrupt our regular scheduled program to bring you a commercial of the first mitzvah. The first mitzvah is, of course, Rosh Chodesh, which really seems bizarre. I would think the first mitzvah is emuna, bitachon. I would think the first mitzvah is Shabbos, Kashrus, Yom Kippur, Sneis. A million and one suggestions I would give before Get your calendar set. What's the big deal about a calendar? You find your local Jewish funeral home and you go pick up a few calendars. Turn on your phone, you go to the app store and you download all the options of uh, Hebrew calendars. What's Rosh Chodesh? So of course we have a fixed calendar. After Hillel the Great established the fixed calendar, we can tell you right now in 500 years exactly when Pesach will be. We have a fixed calendar. Not that you would ever ask that question. We have a fixed calendar. But in the time of Rosh Chodesh, two witnesses went, they observed the new moon, they came back, and, and the Beisdin to whom they reported were given the license to actually manipulate the calendar. The Mishnah says, Atem afilu mezid, if, you, if you organize the calendar incorrectly, meaning you sanctified on the wrong day by accident, or afilu mezidim, even on purpose, said, you know, it's not going to really work out if Yom Kippur falls on the 10th of Tishrei, it's going to be that day next week. That's not really so convenient. Yankees are back in the World Series. Now Stanton's on the team, so I don't want to miss the game. Bayesden would never use that reason. I'm just... So therefore, we're going to manipulate the calendar so Yom Kippur falls on Thursday instead of Wednesday. So when, in fact, is Yom Kippur? Wednesday or Thursday? It's Thursday. 
we were given the power of time. And why were we given it here? I don't want to dwell on this. The Sfarno writes, we've studied this as well in the past at length. The reason they were given this, the first mitzvah a slave nation is given is the mitzvah of controlling time. Because the definition of the difference between a slave and a free person is whether you control your time. If your time is owned by another or by others, you're enslaved. Whether it's owned by technology or must-see TV, or it's owned by a sense of obligations of having to be places, professionally with work, if you don't control your own time and your own life, this book I'm a big fan of, I quote, quote often Essentialism by Greg Bikian, has a great line in it. If you don't prioritize your life, other people will. Someone's going to prioritize your life. Someone's going to control your time. Either you can proactively, with intentionality, control your time, or it will be controlled by others. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that's what the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, Kiddush HaChodesh is saying. If you don't control your time, other people will fill up that space and control your time. And then you'll be enslaved to them. You want to be a free people? You want to break out of slavery? Be in control of your own time. The Pesach offering, we're told now about the Pesach holiday. This is what we're going to come back and study together. We have the 10th plague, Makas Bechoros, the Exodus. It's time to get out, break out. More mitzvahs having to do with the Karban Pesach. Leaving Egypt, we have a mitzvah to remember our leaving Egypt. And one of the ways we commemorate is the mitzvah here of the firstborn, Kopeta Rechem. And then finally, Vayolo Osayot Cholot Totafos Beninecha. When we wear our tefillin, we are remembering that Hashem took us out with great strength. Okay, let's study our section. Aren't you impressed? Okay, good. That's my whole life mission, to impress you. We are going to study exactly where we left off last year. I believe it or not, I went online this morning and I listened to last year's recording to the last two minutes because I wanted to figure out where we left off. And I asked you two questions, and I said, 2018, Parshas Bo, we're going to begin with this. So, mark your calendars for a day before to think about these two questions. Did anyone think about these two questions? Anyone remember these two questions? Okay. So we are in Perak Yud Bey's Pasuk Yud Aleph, literally exactly where we left off last year. It appears in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 352. 352, 353. And what are we in the middle of? We're in the middle of right after Rosh Chodesh was given. And Hashem continues and He says, And I want you to bring this Pesach offering. You're going to set aside a lamb or a kid. And you're going to tie it up. And it's going to sit there for several days. And then you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost. And you're going to roast it. And, and so on. And then I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And when I take you out of Egypt, you're going to have a whole holiday. And we asked two questions. You know what the questions were? Pasuk Yedalaf. It's exactly what we're up to. You're going to eat this korban. Your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is a Pesach offering to Hashem. So tighten your belts and tie your shoelaces and get the engine and the car running and have the suitcases packed and sitting by the door. That's how you're going to eat. It's a pretty anxiety-ridden meal. It's a pretty stressful meal. But don't loosen the belt and don't take off your shoes and put on your slippers and don't kick back on the couch and eat the dinner. The way to eat this special meal, this korban, is shoes tied, belt tightened, suitcase packed, car running. 
Why? I'm taking you out with alacrity, with zeal, with speed. And why am I doing that? Because Pesach Hashem. Because it's Pesach. And then let's read this whole section. We're going to read, then we're going to go back and ask several questions and study it. Okay? You see where we are? And on that night, I'm going to pass throughout Egypt. And all the firstborn are goners, from man to animal. And I'm going to give out punishment to all of these fake gods of Egypt. Why? Because again, the whole purpose of this entire exercise is for you and everyone to know, Ani Hashem. And the blood will be a sign for you. I'll know the Jewish homes. Very easy. I'll see the blood and skip over them. And there'll not be a plague of destruction upon you. When I strike Egypt, you will be spared. This day, boy, it's going to be marked on your calendar. It is going to be festive. It's going to be a holiday forever. This incredible experience and event, you will commemorate it annually. It's going to be for generations to come. An eternal decree you will celebrate. How long will you commemorate each year? Seven days, you're going to eat this thing called matzah. But when you're commemorating what we're about to and not, not yet experienced, when you will in the future commemorate it, you'll eat matzah for seven days. But from the first day, you're not going to go near chametz. Because those seven days, anyone who touches chametz, you're a goner. Kares. You're cut off. No no future world to come. And when we commemorate this holiday, the first and seventh day will be a convocation, meaning the first days and last days of Yantif. You're not going to do any of the 39 or 38 creative labors. You can cook. You're just going to cook potatoes, but you can cook. I want you to safeguard the matzah. Because on this day, the thing that's about to happen, this incredible experience that I'm about to take you out, how are you going to mark that? Matzah. You will guard this day forever for generations to come. On the 14th in the first month in the evening, you're going to eat matzah until the 21st day of the month in the evening. For seven days, you're going to become OCD and neurotic and there'll be no chametz in your home. Because if you were to touch it, you'd be wiped out. And it doesn't only apply to you who are about to experience this. To whom does it also apply? Even the convert who in 2018 will join the Jewish people and doesn't know what you're talking about. Their great-grandparents weren't in Egypt and they didn't sprinkle blood on a doorpost and they weren't liberated, but they too are going to observe this. In in case I haven't made it clear, in case you want to know why we're neurotic, once again, Chometz is arch enemy number one. In its place, you will eat matzah in all of your dwelling places. My friends, tell me what is the obvious question? What is the disturbing question? What is the most compelling question when you're learning this parsha, and frankly, should be the most disturbing question at your Seder table? And most people have spent their entire life not thinking about it. That is an excellent question. We'll talk about that in a moment. But God, the omnipotent God, 
who says, I'm doing all of this so you know that I can run the world and I'm in charge and I'm beyond anything you can imagine, needs our help to mark the doorposts? He can't see through walls? He doesn't know everything? That is the question. Is a great question. It's not my question. Not, not, not the compelling question. We're going to come back to it. It's a great question. I drank water to buy you time. Yes. Good. It sounds like I already took you out, but that's not such a question because what he's saying is when you commemorate it in the future, you will say we're doing this because on this day he took me out back then. But you're getting us there. Well, eight days because we have Yom Tashem in Chutz Laaretz. We're talking about in Israel. That has absolutely nothing to do with our partial class. You just wanted to get it in there. Rav Schechter was here a few weeks ago, and uh, we did a question and answer Shabbos afternoon, and one of the questions I posed to him was, how many days do you have to keep when you go to Israel? And so he went through the different opinions and talked about the trend today, which I also see, that most people, because it's more convenient, you talk about the Bachatos and Kachatos, they're not asking the Shiloh, they're just keeping one day. Rabbi Yossi Adler and Tinek became the Gadol Ador, the Posek for the entire world, because everyone quotes, and he is an enormous Tamachacham and worthy of being a great Posek. It's not a knock on him, but people who don't know what he looks like, have never been to a shul, couldn't pick him out of a lineup, he has become their Posek because he says one day. So, this trend towards keeping one day. So someone who keeps one day and you say, did you study the sugya? Did you ask a shayla? They'll say, no, it just, it makes sense to me that wherever you're going, you observe what the people there are keeping. It doesn't make sense that you're doing something. So Rebbe Schechter said after Rebbe Schechter's presentation that she always tells them, you know what he should answer? That when the person asks the question, you should say, tell me. If in Israel they kept three days of yontif, would you still argue that you should do... She's very sharp, Rebbe Tinshechter. So, that's a great question. Certainly not for now. What is the most compelling question? Last shot, and then I'll tell you, because we'll run out of time. Yes? Excellent! Third time's a charm. Did everyone understand what he said? I'll explain it to you. Wake up a five-year-old child in the middle of the night, any time of the year, and say, why do we eat matzah at the Seder table? And what will that child answer? I'm trying not to insult you to say what you would answer. What would the child answer? Because we didn't have time for the bread to rise. We left in haste. We were in such a rush. The bread couldn't rise, so we eat cardboard for seven days. All right, that's what the child will answer. What's the problem? We're better than that. We've been hearing Parsha's bow how many years? If we paid attention to the Torah reading, if we did Shnayim Mikrav Echatargum, we wouldn't, it's unavoidable and inescapable to ask the following question. God tells Moshe, before they ever didn't have time for the bread to rise, before they've ever left, that the centerpiece of this mitzvah, of this holiday, of the way we commemorate it in perpetuity will be eating matzah. Matzah, 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 no chametz, no chametz, no chametz, eat matzah, eat matzah, eat matzah. Wouldn't you think Moshe would look at him and say, what's matzah? What's chametz? I don't know what you're talking about. We haven't yet had the no time for the bread to rise thing. We've been eating risen bread. We've been eating 
bread. What's chametz? What's matzah? What's going on? Clearly the reason that we were all taught or led to believe is not the reason. Clearly. There's nothing to do with no time for bread to rise because this was already prescribed before there was no time for bread to rise. Or let me put it differently. There was no time for bread to rise because God wanted matzah to be the symbol of this holiday. It's not that we eat matzah because there was no time for the bread to rise. It's that there was no time for the bread to rise because God wanted us to eat matzah. And the question is why? Why? Certainly doesn't help the Ashkenazi gastrointestinal challenges. So why? Is it punitive? Why? Why did God want Pesach to be synonymous with matzah? What is it about matzah that's so central and so symbolic of what this holiday is about? And I'll give you a hint. We just read one word in the beginning of the passage we read. Pasuk Yedalaf. Let's go back now and study. In Pasuk Yedalaf, what was that word? Bechi Pazon. Hashem says, tighten the belt, start the car, pack the suitcase, tie up your shoelaces. Tie up your shoelaces. I love it. Masnechem Chagurim, which literally means tighten your belt. Na'alechem Barayim tighten your shoelaces. There's a great book called The Survivor's Club by Ben Sherwood. It's an amazing, amazing book. But anyway, in it he, has a, he talks about, he's a researcher who studied in many different situations why certain people were predisposed to survive. The survivors of plane crashes, survivors of cancer, a whole chapter on survivors of the Holocaust, survivors of all of these situations, what were the ingredients that made survivors more likely to survive? It's an amazing book. It is an incredible conclusion. I'm not going to spoil it and tell you what it is. I'll save it for another time. But anyway, in the chapter, yeah, and he has fascinating tidbits along the way. For example, do you know that lefties have a shorter life expectancy than righties? I'm a lefty and my wife is a lefty. But here's the good news. It has nothing to do with biology or anatomy. It's because the world is designed for righties. So there are more accidents of lefties using equipment that was designed for righties. Do you know the safest place in the world to have a heart attack? You would say a hospital, right? Wrong. You know the safest place? It's in the book? A casino. Because in a casino, there are cameras on every person, every moment, everybody's being watched. And the response time when someone drops in a casino is faster than any other place on earth. Anyway, it's a great book. It's a great book. But in the chapter he has, I'm not suggesting, therefore you should spend more time there. If you're worried about your heart, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. Um, in the chapter he has on airplane crashes, at the conclusion after studying it and who survived, he talks about, we tend to wear our most comfortable footwear when we go on an airplane. So if you have naot, if you have crocs, if you have, he says, wrong move. You need your sneakers with laces that tie up. God forbid circumstances should demand and you need to scramble. You shouldn't be wearing your naot. So that's the image I have here. Masnechem Chagurim. He talks about where you should get a seat on the plane, which part of the plane, and all these crashes was the most likely. Anyway, Na'alechem Baraglechem. Tie up your shoes. What? Uh, it's called The Survivor's Club. I should really get a cut of all these books. <laughs> we should design it through Amazon link that gives the shul. Oh, speaking of cuts, I hope everyone bought cards outside for the Grove. Many... 
dare I say, most of you are not members of Bokraton Synagogue. If you enjoy this year and the many services that Bokraton Synagogue provides you, there is a way for you to donate enormous money without it costing you one penny. And frankly, therefore, there is no excuse, zero justification not to do it. We all shop at the Grove Kosher Market. We spend a lot of money. 10% of what you spend will come back to the shul if you just buy the gift card and use the card. You can be giving the shul, don't say it out loud, but consider what you spend a month there and calculate 10% of that. You could be donating. So if you appreciate this year and the others, especially if you're not a member, you can buy the cards. I know that we had it beforehand and we'll continue to have it. Okay, how did I get on this? Masnechem Chagurim, your shoes. Oh, sure, it's Survivor's Club. I don't get a cut from that one, but it's a great book. So, why? And the answer, Bechipazon. Let's go back and take a look and study. Look at Rashi. Masnechem Chagurim, Mizumanim Laderech. Be ready to go. Be ready to hit the road. By the way, was Yitzis, now I would understand all this. Bechipazon, your, your belt tightened, your shoes tied. If God says, because you have no idea, I'm about, to, I'm about to tell you to go. I would understand it. But they weren't about to go then. It's not till later that they're going to get the call, the green light, that it's time to leave. So if they're not getting the green light till later, why are they being told to do this now? How does that make sense? How does that make sense? So... Look at the Svarno. Masnechem chagurim, mezumanim laderach, be ready to hit the road. Lahorus al bitachon bilti mesupak bakel yizbarach, beyosem mechinim atzma laderach baodam bebeis kela. Because when you are in prison, and it defies logic to believe that you're about to go, it is the ultimate statement of faith to have your bag packed, to have your belt tightened. Even in the heart of imprisonment, of servitude, it is the greatest affirmation that they believe this message of hope and faith to be ready to go, even though it's not going to happen yet. Right? We know the stories of great people, righteous people, who had a suitcase packed for when Mashiach will come. We won't have time to pack. It was the statement that I, I'm a chakalo at every moment. It is an incredible statement. I saw one parish explains that Tzipisali Yeshua, one of the questions we're asked to go to the Gemara and Shabbos when we get upstairs, we're asked a series of questions. And one of them is, did you long for the redemption? And that's exactly this question. Were you fatalistic? Did you become passive? Did you assume that this life and the Jewish condition in exile was forever? Or were your bags packed? Did you really believe Mashiach could come any minute, any moment? The redemption's about to happen. Get ready. Here it comes. So even when there might be a delay, being ready is the fulfillment of Tzipis Yeshua. It's the fulfillment of actually longing, of actually affirming our faith and longing we're going to go. It says, Rashi b'chi bazon lashon b'halo mehirus. Alacrity, zeal. The Pesach calls it a Pesach hu l'ashem. You're going to observe this thing as a Pesach for Hashem. Ha-karban ukari Pesach Hashem adilug v'apsicha. The carbon that's brought to commemorate the experience is called the carbon Pesach. Why? To commemorate the Dilug. Hashem skipped over our houses. Pasach. He skipped. 
he skips from Egyptian to Egyptian and he goes over the Jewish home. So that's why the holiday, according to Rashi, is called Pesach. The Karban is called Pesach. All to commemorate what? The fact that Hashem skipped over was Pesach on our, on our, um, on our homes. Why did we have to do that? So let's keep reading. I'm going to go around Egypt at night. I'm going to strike the firstborn from man to animal. And the Elohim Mitzrayim, I will do Shvatim. Rashi. That means that if there was a guest from New Jersey in Mitzrayim and he was a firstborn that night, he was a goner. And if there was an Egyptian who was in New Jersey that night, Egyptian that, in New Jersey that night, and he's a firstborn, he's a goner. Hashem says, this is not something that can be explained by geography. It's not going to be an epidemic or plague or some contaminant that you can explain. Because the Egyptian firstborn who's vacationing elsewhere is, still, is also going to be struck. So clearly this is the hand of Hashem. And what's the purpose of Echol Elohim Mitzrim? Shall eitz near keves. Of wood will rot. Shall matachas nemesis. And if it's metal, it will melt. Hashem says, not through an ambassador, not through an emissary, I myself am going to disprove that there is ever such a thing as another deity, that there is such a thing as another God. Says the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, This is my response. Paro and the Egyptian said, Mi Hashem, who's, we've got our pagan, we, we know our gods, our idols. Mi Hashem, who's this God? That's why Hashem says over, Ani Hashem, Yedatem, you'll know. So now, when he comes to the ultimate, the culmination of this educational experience, called the Ten Plagues, Eseshvatim, Ani Hashem. I'm going to hold your gods accountable. You will realize, I will have educated you, that they are fake, they are a fraud, they are a counterfeit, Ani Hashem. There's only one real God. There's only one real God. The Ibn Ezra, by the way, notes, your belts are tightened, your shoes are on, and you're holding your staff. Why do you need to hold a staff? Says the Ibn Ezra, because you're going to need to lead the donkeys. And that's what's going to get you out. Okay. You're leaving Bachim Pazon. We still haven't answered my question. We're going to come back to it in a moment. Why are you putting the blood? Rashi says, Where was the blood placed? So here's something else, which is a terrible misconception. That we put the blood on the outside, and the Egyptians saw, it says, And Rashi says, The blood was put on the inside, not the outside. How did Hashem see it? So that only further supports the question. Right? If it was so that Hashem knew which homes to skip over, then it makes no sense to be putting it on the inside. You've got to put it on the outside. So why were we told to put the blood there altogether? How does that make any sense? Upasachti, and then I will skip over. What happened if an Egyptian was in a Jewish home? Would the blood on the doorpost spare that Egyptian? Rashi says, no. Rashi says, 
The Egyptian couldn't even get sanctuary, couldn't hide in the home of the Jew. So why put the blood? The answer is very simple. By the way, the Mechilta, the Medrash says that the blood of the Pesach came from which animal? The animal that was the god and the deity of the Egyptian. Do you understand the amount of courage it took the Jew, who was still enslaved, who was not yet liberated, to take the god of their oppressor, tie it to a bedpost, have it sit there for many days, and then slaughter it with the Egyptian knowing? You understand the courage it took? And then take that blood and put it on the doorpost. <coughs> that blood that was on the doorpost, the Mechilta says, was mixed with what blood? Look at the Balaturim, Pasuk Yigimel. Hayahadam lachem. Lachem begematria is hamila. Sheba'osa halayla malu. The Jewish people gave themselves a bris that night. It made it kind of hard to travel the next day, but okay, let's leave that aside. They gave themselves a bris that night. And the blood on the doorpost was a mixture of the blood of the sacrifice with the blood of the mila. What do the two have in common? And the Navi Yechezka later references this when he says, The damayach, the multiple bloods, are the blood of the korban and the blood of the bris. What do the two have in common? What both have in common is that we are not passive spectators to our destiny. We are not magili. We do not believe that we are entitled and that we deserve. We recognize that if we want a better future, if we want redemption, we have to be the catalyst. We have to be the cause. We have to be a partner. We have to be a participant. So God says, you want me to bring you out of Egypt? No problem. I got your back. Ten plagues, splitting of a sea. I'm going to do it. What are you willing to do? What's your skin in the game? What are you willing to put on the line? What courage are you willing to show? What sacrifice, literally and figuratively, are you willing to make? Hashem says, I'll do it, but I want you to partner. Which is also why when it comes time for Eliyahu Navi to come to the Seder, and we sing, or we say, and then we sing Eliyahu Navi, what do we do? We open the door. Why are you opening the door? Eliyahu Navi can't come down the chimney. He can't walk through walls. If he can be in every Jewish home simultaneously on Seder night, he can also somehow get into your house without it, you're opening the door. Why are we opening the door? Because if you want Elio and Navi to come, you can't sit back reclining on your couch and wait. What are you willing to do? Get up, get to the door, do something. And the bris milah is our partnering with Hashem in the completion of man. It's our participation in the perfection of man, with the bris. It's what the two have in common, but I have a lot more to say on this, but I want to answer our question before we run out of time. So, so why were we doing the blood? It wasn't for Hashem. Hashem knew. Hashem didn't need us to put the blood there. He needed us to put something, some skin in the game. And we could put our skin in the game, literally and figuratively, um, on the inside of the doorpost, because Hashem didn't need to see it marked on the outside. It was for us to go through the process of tying up the animal, slaughtering it in the face of our oppressors for them to see our belief and faith that really Hashem was the one who was going to take us out. Seven days we eat matzah. Hanefeshahi. Ushmartem. Let's go to Pasuk Yitzayin. There was much more I wanted to say here, but let's go to Pasuk Yitzayin. Ushmartem is matzos. We have to safeguard the matzah. Safeguard the matzah. Because, so our question was, what matzo? We still have time for dough to rise. We're not yet leaving. It's not the chippazon hasn't happened yet. What are you talking about? What matzo? So Rashi says, 
Don't read it matzos. Read it shmartem esa mitzvos. Kederach shein machmitzen esa matzos kachein machmitzen esa mitzvos. Baliyadcha aseosom miyad mitzvah. Baliyadcha al tachmitzena. When you have an opportunity, don't procrastinate. Don't be lazy. Don't push it off. When a mitzvah presents itself, grab it, embrace it, run and do it right then. Just like if you leave flour and water alone, with the passage of time, it will rise, become leaven, become chametz. So too, when you have an opportunity to do something good and something right, if you're lazy and you procrastinate, you turn it into chametz. Even if you get it done in the end, by the time you do it, it's chametz. Don't let it become chametz. Ushmartem. So what is this? Just a cute play on words? Don't read it. Ushmartem is a matzah. This is the origin, by the way, of shmur matzah. You know how you pay a premium to get the Shmura Matzah? Question is, Ushmartim is a Matzah. So you got to guard the Matzah from what point? From when you thresh the wheat? From when you grind the flour? From when you pick the wheat in the field? Everyone know the miracle, the story of the Babachers who picked the wheat earlier than normal, and because of that they discovered the terror tunnel that they were going to use between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You remember that miraculous story? It's a true story. I heard from someone who heard from a person who was there. It's a true story. Don't read it matzos, read it mitzos. Just keep play on words. What's really going on over here? There's an incredible maral. The maral in his Gurariye, in his commentary on Rashi, right here in our Pasuk, in our Parsha, answers all of our questions. And the maral here says the following. You know why matzah is the symbol of Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim? And you know why we have this cute play on words? And you know why Hashem told us there won't be time for the dough to rise because I want you to eat matzah, not that you eat matzah because there wasn't time for the dough to rise. The answer is very simple. We live in a physical world and we operate by physical restrictions and limitations. And when we talk about a physical world, we talk about creation, we usually just think about the physical universe, but we forget that time itself is part of creation. And as part of creation, it's part of what differentiates us as finite beings, unlike the Ribbon Shalom, the Almighty, who is infinite. The Svarno, on the very beginning of the Torah, says, If I wake any little child in the middle of the night and I say, what is the very first thing that was created in the six days of creation, what would they answer? Shamayim it's the heaven and the earth. Wrong. What is the very first thing that was created? Time. Bereshus. Or Bereshus. The very first thing God created was the beginning. Time. Racious. Time. There can only be six days if there's time. The whole note, again, we don't know what it means to operate and live outside of time. We can't relate to that. We can't identify with that. But we live within time. Time too is a creation of Hashem. For us to be an immortal people, for us to be a holy, sacred people, for us to be a people of zeal and alacrity who can transcend and rise above the limitations of the universe, be it physical or be it time, we were taken out with speed, with chipazon, with alacrity. Now it's not that it's Einstein's theory of relativity, which is true, right? That there's a relationship between time and speed, right? If you put people on the moon and you track their age and... Anyone here educated? <laughs> Einstein's theory of relativity... So there's a relationship between time and speed that the faster you go, the more you can slow down time. There's a, there's a relationship between the two. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu was prescribing for us 
that if you're going to be an immortal people, if you're going to be an eternal people, if you're going to be a covenantal people, if you're going to be a people whose whole mission is to achieve the spiritual and to transcend the physical, then you need to be born Bechipazon. You need to be born the closest we can to transcending time. And what is the closest we can to be unaffected by time? By going as fast as possible. Speed. And that's why matzah became the symbol. Because matzah is the symbol of not laziness and procrastination, but zrizus, alacrity and zeal. The character, the hallmark, our people are to be defined by a sense of zrizus. Don't be lazy and procrastinate. Israel's not so disproportionately represented on the NASDAQ and medical breakthroughs and technological breakthroughs. We are not the, what was the famous book? The startup nation, thank you, because we're lazy. Eh, we'll try to discover ways tomorrow. We'll invent the SMS tomorrow. We'll invent this cure to Alzheimer's tomorrow. We are the people who we are because we run. We run to achieve, to accomplish with vision, with ambition, with aspiration. And that was born into our DNA when we became a nation. Because the whole way we were taken from Egypt was Bechipazon. Don't be lazy, don't procrastinate. Don't turn your life into chametz. Mitzvah bal yadcha al tach mitzena. So says the Maharal, designed into our very DNA is this, is this notion and is this experience. And in fact, it is what defines how we live our lives. I'll end with this, having left out so much that I wanted to talk about. I'll end with this. What is the very first halach in all of Shulchan Arach? Shulchan Arach, Orachayim, Simen Aleph, Seif Aleph. What does it say? Yiskaber ka'ari lamod baboker la'avodas baro, shiehu ma'orer hashachar. What does it mean to be a Jew? Is to wake up like a lion, to greet the day, to serve Hashem, to usher in the dawn. That's what it means to be a Jew, is that you don't sleep late, and you're not lazy. You sleep because we need to sleep to have the energy to pursue our mission here on earth. We don't value sleep because we love sleep. We value sleep because it's what energizes us in order to achieve, to do. So what it means to be a Jew is wake up like a lion. Don't turn your day into chametz by hitting snooze 50 times, waking up late, going to the late, late, late minion, davening at the kotel, which is another word for your living room. That's not the way a Jew greets the day. We wake up with a roar like a lion. Because built into our DNA when we were born as a nation was chipazon. We only, Baruch Hashem, eat matzah one week a year. But the theme of matzah should permeate our year. The theme of matzah should inform our year that throughout the year we don't allow any of these things to turn us into chametz. So that brings us to next year, Chamishi. We'll pick up Pasuk Chav Aleph and I'll make some notes on the other things I hope to talk about. I wanted to offer another suggestion about Pesach. Rashi said the name Pesach is Pasach. Hashem skipped over. But you know, the Arizal introduced us to this idea which was quoted countless times since then that Pesach really stands for Pesach. It's the holiday of speaking, which is unusual, because usually we say, Emor ma'at Don't talk a lot. Let your actions speak louder than words. And The more you talk, the more trouble you'll get in. That nothing is better than listening. And yet this holiday is not about listening. This holiday is all about talking. 
take us full circle to how we began. Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. It's called Lechem Oni because it's the bread that we talk a lot. The more you talk, the better you are. So normally we're told, be a good listener, don't talk a lot. Pesach comes along and says, don't stop talking. What is it about freedom that's connected with talking? And how does that connect to the word Pesach? Pesach. We'll talk about that. Be'ezras Hashem, beginning of next year.